0: So I'm going to talk about the five hindrances. Uh, Some of of you are very familiar with them very intimately if you've been practicing for any period of time. Um, But the five hindrances are the forces in the mind uh, that keep us from seeing clearly, from being mindful, from getting concentrated. And we all have them. We all have these uh, different forces that, that you know, confuse us and, you know, make keep our minds from being clear. Um, at all levels of practice, from the very beginners uh, to very advanced practitioners, the hindrances come up. So learning how to work with them skillfully is an essential part of uh, developing this practice. So I like to think of them in pairs. Uh, there's uh, desire and aversion, uh, sleepiness and restlessness, and doubt, that one doesn't get a, it's all by itself. Um, so sleepiness is also often called sloth and torpor, kind of a, uh, words that don't get used very often, but um, they give you the sense of, of what that is. Um, so you know, we have them a lot, you know, they, how many of you have experienced at some point wanting things, think, things to be different than they were? Right? You know, how many of you have had sleepiness? How about restlessness? Maybe looking at the clock, you know, what time is it? When will it be over? Um, You know, doubt is a little bit on the trickier side, so we'll we'll talk about that at the end. you know, one of the things that's really wonderful about mindfulness practice is that even though we, we think of the five hindrances as obstacles, um, they're not. They're they're we can fold them into our practice and learn from them. They become part of our practice. What we do is we turn our attention to them and the moment that we make the hindrance, the meditation object, we're already they're already transformed. We're no longer caught in it. Yeah, so, for instance, let's say um, uh, the person next to you is snoring really loudly and it's really annoying you and you're like, oh, you know, how could they, you know, why don't, why don't they go sleep elsewhere and, you know, you, you might be all contracted about it, you know, and, um, and now notice, oh, this is aversion has arisen. Um, and then all of a sudden you wake up, you go, oh, oh yeah, that's aversion. And then you turn your attention not to the snoring, not to how much you hate it, but, oh, look at how that feeling of, of, um, of hating this guy for snoring feels. You know, how that feels. It's like a heaviness, maybe a heaviness in my chest, maybe a, a tightness in my head. Everybody feels this a little differently. Um, you know, you've probably all experienced getting irritated by almost nothing. You know, um, I know we, I remember studying and, you know, somebody, um, you know, drops a pencil and it's like, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> and getting really annoyed, you know. So it's not what's really happening in the world, but how we react to it. Um, one of the really great things about this practice is that it increases our capacity to be with what's uncomfortable, with what we don't like. And life is full of what's uncomfortable and what we don't like. And the other nice thing about that, even though it increases your capacity to, to be with it, I, I like to call that, uh, being you know being comfortable, being uncomfortable. You know that's that's what it's done. You know, it's just I'm so much more comfortable being uncomfortable. I still get really uncomfortable, but it's just so much more e- much easier. <laughs> and uh, but it also the more capacity discomfort increases. So does our capacity for joy, uh, for feeling happiness. Um, I don't know if you've heard of people who have died from happiness, you know, from the excitement of happiness. You know, they just couldn't contain it. It was too strong, and they got just so excited. Um, you know, of course, they must have had a weakness, but but at the same time, some people can't tolerate happiness. They can't tolerate joy, they're uncomfortable with that. And so as we develop these capacities, uh, you know, it makes our life a lot richer, fuller. Um, I like this, um, wa- this quote from Ajahn Sumedho that I, that I really love, you know, that really describes how, how to relate to the hindrances. You know, He says, um, the spacious mind has room for everything. It's like the... it's like the space in a room which is never harmed by what goes in and out of it. So the spacious mind has room for everything. It's like the space in a room that is not harmed by what goes in and out of it. And this is what we're doing, you know, we're making our mind spacious, giving room for all the Uh, all the things that arise, you know, whether they're joys, whether they're sorrows, whether they're really old baggage, whether they're, um, you know, the things that are really hard to accept that are in this world. There's room for all of it. Um. So the Buddha said that um, all the hindrances arise from misguided attention. Now, now, one way to think of that is, um, um, for instance, okay, um, let's say you're going down the Grand Canyon, down a path in the Grand Canyon, one of these most beautiful places, and you're really kind of awed by the beauty, and you're walking, and, and uh, as you walk, you notice a cigarette butt. You know, somebody, you know, left a cigarette butt. And what, hap- what do you do? You know, what does your mind do? Does it go, cigarette, but how could they? How could they be littering this gorgeous place? And suddenly your mind has gotten caught in aversion and it's just clouded by by this uh, reaction to it. And your mind is now totally in this path of you know you know maybe it's the person in front of me maybe I should go report them you know maybe I should go approach them and you're all caught up in that and you're in this incredible place and you've totally forgotten where you are because you're all caught up in this cigarette butt and um, you know maybe you'll pick it up <laughs> uh, so the attention um, if you had paid a little bit more careful attention, you would have noticed that maybe the cigarette butt was unpleasant. It was unpleasant seeing a cigarette butt in the middle of the Grand Canyon path, and before you got caught in this other stuff. Uh, but once you get caught, it doesn't matter. You wake up in the middle of it, and you go, ah, oh, aversion. Okay, and you begin to let it go. It doesn't necessarily drop like that. You know, but that's the process, you know, we work with these things, the way they show up, the way they are. Um, This, um, you know, working with the hindrances, uh, there's like three aspects to it. I mean, one, one way of thinking of it is three aspects. There's preventing them, understanding them, and remedies. So what that means, preventing them, I'll, I'll talk about in a moment, understanding them them is um, getting to know them uh, really well, um, you know, going through them, experiencing them fully. And remedies are what you do when that's not practical. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes. Um, there's a Pali word called Vedana, which is, uh, refers to the uh, quality Um, of our experience in terms of whether something's either pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. So most of our experience uh, is one of those three things, right? Uh, If you have a sip of water, maybe that's pleasant. Um, If you go to take a sip of what you think is uh, uh, milk, but it's buttermilk, it's unpleasant. you know, but in itself, it might not be unpleasant, right? You know, if somebody wants buttermilk, it might be really pleasant. But if you think it's milk and you drink buttermilk, it's really unpleasant for a moment. Uh, so it, a lot of these things aren't inherently pleasant or unpleasant. They're just how you respond in the moment. There isn't a right or, or wrong way to feel about... Uh, I mean, you look at art. Oh, that's beautiful. Oh, that's ugly. You know, there's no right way. It's how we perceive it. Uh, Things are either pleasant or unpleasant to us based on our conditioning. Um, And a lot of things are neither. Like right now, as you're listening to me, uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff that is neither pleasant or unpleasant that you're probably not aware of. You might not have noticed um, uh, how the fabric of your clothing feels against your body while you're listening to me because your attention is elsewhere. So there's a lot of sensations we have that are neither pleasant or unpleasant. And the reason this is so important is because um, when we're pre- trying to prevent the hindrances, we do it by staying really close to our experience, really close to how things feel, and so when something unpleasant arises, uh, we can just see it as unpleasant oh yeah it's getting it's warm it's, boy that's unpleasant or we don't really notice that we go, God, it's so warm, it's so uncomfortable, and suddenly the mind gets all, all aversive. We get caught by the warmth. But really it's just an unpleasant experience. And uh, we don't have to react to it. We can just experience it as unpleasant. And it's not to make wrong when the hindrance arises, where we have aversion to the heat. You know, I hate this heat, you know, and, and I really don't want it here. And, uh, you know, you can get all caught up in it, and it can be really uncomfortable. Um, you know, but it's, and that's how the hindrance is. You can get all caught up in it. So we bring our mindfulness to it, and then that becomes the object of meditation. You know, our reaction to the heat. Not the heat. The heat may have been the first thing that arose. But once we get caught, that becomes the object. And we stay with it. We stay with the reaction until it dissipates. Um, and same thing with desire, you know, uh, there's nothing wrong with desire, you know, you, um, you go to, you know, breakfast and you see fresh fruit and you go, oh, that looks really good, you know, and, and you want some, you know, it's, it's a natural, easy, uh, wonderful feeling. Without with, none of us would be alive, right? If we didn't have desire, we wouldn't eat, you know, or parents wouldn't have had sex. Um, you know, without desire, we wouldn't be around. And, and so it's, it's desire is fine that's that looks good I want it The problem is I want it I've had five of them and I still want more <laughs> you know that's uh, you know that's called a hindrance you know craving um, so it becomes a hindrance when we contract around it the natural desire for something can be really easy once it becomes a hindrance, you may have the excitement of desire, but it becomes there's a tightness that comes with it. So if you watch really carefully when you get desire, uh, you can notice if you're clinging because something in you is not at ease, something is not totally relaxed. You can have desire and have total equanimity whether you're going to get it or not. You know, and that's the ease we're looking. You know, we're looking for to be free of the hindrance. Um. And, and just so to, to give you a sense of it, you know, sometimes when these things arise, um, they um, staying with it, paying attention, uh, doesn't really work so well. Um, it might be so intense, uh, like for instance, in some situations like working with uh, a lot of pain, uh, where we get so contracted that you just can't stay with the hindrance. So you might want to use what we call remedies. Um, You know, there's a lot of situations where you get so sleepy that any mindfulness just isn't cutting it. You know, it's like, oh yeah, yeah, I'm I'm sleepy. You know, it's it's just so intense. Uh, So you use remedies. You know, and so I'm going to talk about the remedies for each one of them in in a few minutes. You know, and, and one of the things I feel uh, we can't say too much of is that the hindrances are not a personal failing. Um, I can't tell you how many times my own practice, I got caught by that idea. You know, I'd see that I'd spend 10 minutes, you know, in aversion about something, or or half an hour, you know, maybe longer sometimes. And, you know, and it would be like, oh, I'm such a you know, such a failure at meditating, because I, I got caught in this for half an hour, you know. And they're not personal. We, we all have them. This is, uh, there's nobody here who hasn't gotten very caught in, in, in many of the hindrances. And sometimes we can have what we call multiple hindrance attacks or where, where you have a bunch of them you know you you want something you've got a version, you've got uh you know uh, maybe not sleepiness when you're having multiples but uh but you know that can happen a lot um, so we learn how to work with this um, there's um Again, it can be said there's, I like to think of three components to a hindrance. So there's a physical component, like for instance, if you want something, right? Do you feel something in your body when you're wanting? You know, sometimes people who want something, they're like leaning forward, you know, this feeling of leaning forward. You're like almost going out to get it, you know, and I've actually seen people in meditation, you yeah, know, they're like, <laughs> uh, or, um know or sometimes if you aversion you know I you know some people get really tight jaws you know like you know or their hands get tight or they their abdomen gets tight every everybody's different how you respond to it and you might respond at different times differently um, and then there's the emotional aspect of a hindrance so for instance um, you know let's uh, let's say your neighbor is um, uh, you know, six o'clock in the morning and they turn on their blower, you know, while you're trying to meditate, right? Um, I don't know if you've ha- ever had that happen, but I have. <laughs> and and so this aversion arises, you know, and, um, and so what comes up? Anger, right? Uh, you know, self-righteousness. That's That one for me has was been a very, you know, very common one. You know, how could they do this? You know, this kind of self-righteousness. You know, I'm such a better person. I would never do something like that, you know. Not quite that way, but still that it has that flavor. Uh, so emotions arise. Um, with desires, um, you can have some really nice emotions arise. I mean, that's why we, you know, a lot of us like having desires, right? So you might have, um, uh, uh, you know, um, let's say you're having a sexual fantasy, you know, and you want, um, you know, you might have all this, uh, excitement, uh, delight at the fantasy, uh, you know, people have spent sometimes long periods on retreat on these fantasies. You know what we want. You know, and uh, um, uh, you know, s- or or sometimes um, uh, a desire c- can be covering up feelings of loneliness, feelings of um, you know of not liking ourselves. So a lot of. Um, Uh, negative emotions can be underneath desire. And again, you know, when I'm using this as desire as a hindrance. Um, And then the last uh, aspect of the hindrance, we have the physical, you know, which you can, that's all the easiest to turn to when when a hindrance arises. How does it feel in the body? Uh, Then attend the emotion, you know, uh, is there an emotion that's also there? And then the last part is the cognitive aspect. Sometimes we're telling ourselves stories. Uh, For instance, going back to let's say the room's really warm, um, you know, and we don't like it. You know, we're caught in aversion. um, You know, we're annoyed, some or emotion. But but uh, cognitively, we might be thinking, "I'll start meditating once it's cool again. Then I'll really start meditating. Now it doesn't count." (laughs) <laughs> and I've done that. I've, you know, I'm, I think many of you have done that, too. So these stories, we tell ourselves about it. it could, there's lots of stories. You know, that, That's just one little example. Um, so when a hindrance arises, it's not that, that I'm a, I'm, we're recommending that you analyze it. Um, it's just that these are the things that, hap- that you might notice when you really pay close attention. And sometimes when you name a hindrance, just by naming it, it goes away. You know, you recognize, oh, that's aversion, especially if you've noticed aversion, you know, this is the 500th time you noticed it today, um, then it might just, you know, oh yeah, aversion, okay, go, it's gone. Or you might be caught up in it and then, you know, you notice, oh yeah, there's a lot of uh, anger underneath it, there's a lot of annoyance, there's fear underneath it, who knows what's there. Um, And then you're staying with it, and then you might see that you have this idea about it uh, that may or may not be true. And so, um, you know, uh, again, when these come up, see what's there, see what's there. Um. So I'm going to talk a little bit bit about um, each of them now. So, as I said, sensual desire and aversion um, can be seen as a pair, as two sides of the same coin. For instance, um, uh, going back to it, if it's too warm, if it feels too warm, uh, you may have the aversion to the warmth, uh, or you may have the desire for the coolness. It might be in some ways the same thing, but it's funny how there's a subtle difference in how you get caught. Like for me, my focus might be, uh, oh, it's so warm, I hate it, I hate it, I hate it, and be really stuck there, you know, that, that was my, my particular tendency has been that way. Whereas somebody else might be, I've got to do something about it, you know, so it turns into desire. I, I want to turn on the air conditioner, I want to uh, open all the windows, I want to go outside, I want, want, want. You know, so it can go either way for the same unpleasant experience. Um, you know, so, so it's just how you get caught in the moment. might be totally the opposite way the next time you get caught. So see what's there, not what you think should be there. Um, can't read anything here. Okay. <laughs> um, and again, I just want to state that, um, you know, all life, from plant to every animal, moves towards the pleasant, moves away from the unpleasant. It's the natural tendency of life. And so, um, you know, so we, we are drawn towards the pleasant. You know, if it's cooler over there, we want to move over there. It's just the nature of a very natural thing. So these hindrances arise from really natural things um, in, in our beings. Um, But how we relate to those natural things uh, is so significant, because if you take, um, you know, clinging to desire can completely ruin our lives. Or clinging to aversion can completely ruin our lives. That's addiction. Addiction is the same process, but just taken into a much more compulsive level. And same thing, you know, with, with aversion, aversion can turn into ill will. Um, often, it's actually called aversion or ill will, the hindrance. You know, I tend to use aversion because it's more um, easier to connect with you know, at at first. But ill will is the same force but just in a greater force where we hate people, we want to hurt them, Uh, you know, people have, uh, you know, uh, exploded someone and they can hurt someone, they can, uh, you know, uh, lose their jobs because they get so upset. So this is all just kind of stepping up aversion. You know, I don't like what happened and I'm pissed and now I'm really angry and now I'm really angry and and then it, it goes that way we, we just uh, uh, so so these forces are really uh, important forces to consider um, so in terms of desire the the remedies for desire uh, sexual desire uh, um, Again, as I've mentioned, you know, uh, it's a very healthy thing, sexual desire, on the meditation cushion not so useful. Um, and uh, so if there's excessive lust, you know, where you know, just can't think of anything else but lust, uh, uh, you can focus, for instance, on uh, one of the remedies is to focus on the non-attractive parts of the body. It's not about grossing yourself out with them, you know, but you just focus on things like bones, the bones, oh yeah, think of the bones of that person, think of their saliva, think of the urine, you know, of the components of the body, you know, and it's just skillfully shifting your attention to something other than what you desire. And so as a remedy that can be really work well. Um, if you want something that's harmful to you, for instance, let's say you're wanting a, you know, uh, you smoke cigarettes and you're wanting a cigarette, you're trying to quit, you know, you can focus on the consequences of getting what you want. Or let's say you have high blood pressure and you, and they serve, you know, potato chips with loaded with salt. Uh, you know, you focus on the, the consequences of eating those. Uh, so those are remedies. Uh, um, ideally what we do is we write out the desire. Um, I think uh, if you've ever written out a desire, something we want, um, you know, let's say you really want to uh, eat that third piece of pie and you really want it and it's like really intense. If you stay with it, I guarantee you eventually that desire goes away. It's amazing how every desire we've had, even if unfilled, it goes away. Every ev- aversion eases itself after time it goes away. So by staying with it, we, we can talk about as riding the desire. So the desire arises, it has a peak where it feels like, I've got to do this, and then it slowly starts fading. All our desires, all our aversions are all impermanent; they do go away, and so you know when we when they show up, we can ride them, ride the those aversions, and stay with them until they go away and or if it's too overwhelming, then you use these remedies um you know, thinking about how impermanent these things are is another remedy, really, if you, you know, using the intellect uh, to help deal with, uh, with them when they arise. So the next one is aversion, or ill will. And uh, as I mentioned, you know, aversion is wanting, you know, um, wanting things to not be the way they are and pushing them away. It's the energy of pushing them away. Sometimes with aversion people are kind of, um, you know, their energetics and their body kind of push back. They, they go a little bit into themselves, you know. It's not necessarily so obvious. Um, negative uh, self-judgment self is aversion turned inward. So it's the same thing, you don't like that person, you don't like this person. So it's just turned inward. So really recognizing when we're being judgmental uh, of ourselves, harsh, harsh with ourselves, that, oh, this is aversion, this isn't the truth, this is a hindrance we can work with. Um, when I mentioned, you know, to work with a hindrance to, to understand it, you know, through the body, emotions, and cognitive. You know, I like to think of it as um, body, heart, and mind. You know, kind of makes it uh, a little bit easy to, to remember when you're caught in the middle of something like that. So, for instance, um, let's say you experience like a tight shoulder in meditation. Right? Unpleasant. Let's say you got caught and ah, oh, that's really uncomfortable. I wish it would go away. When will the sitting be over? You know, your mind's all caught up, all caught up in it. So you can turn your attention to the body, to the body sensations um, of the pain, or if you if there's a point where the pain is, um, where the aversion is bigger than the pain. So, for instance, if you, had, if you didn't get caught, you might be exploring the tension in your shoulder. But at some point, sometimes the aversion to it, it's like, I hate this pain, becomes bigger than the pain itself. And what's really happening is your mind is really dark over this pain. It gets dark and cloudy. It doesn't want to explore the pain. It just wants it to go away. It just, you know, It's just really caught in wanting it to go away. Um, and so we explore, how does the, the aversion feel in the body? It's different than the shoulder pain, right? Can you relate to that? You know, to the difference? Like a shoulder pain, there's, it might have tingling. It might have all these different sensations in your shoulder. Uh, but aversion f- kind of feels more of your body in it. Uh, you know, the, the dislike, that, that whole feeling is very different. And so you can turn your attention to that physical sensation. And, uh, and it might be that you're feeling that way, and, and you're angry, that's the emotion, and you're feeling like a failure, or whatever whatever special neuroticism you might add to it. Um, and, and again, you know, wha- and what's your mind doing? Does your mind have a story about this, you know? Um, if only my shoulder pain would go away, then I could meditate. I mean, I, you know, I've done that more than once, as I said. Um, so sometimes um, sometimes when the, it's too strong, when the aversion is too strong and you can't kind of put your hands on it, you know, wrap your arms around it, um <laughs> uh, it can be really helpful to change your focus. And uh, a couple of the things that's really helpful with these hindrances is to either narrow your focus or widen your focus. And what I mean by that, it's like um, you can narrow your focus by really focusing on the breath very closely and maybe counting breaths. Um, We haven't talked about counting breaths, you know, and I I meant to bring it up at some point. Um, But one of the methods that we sometimes use for staying present with the breath is to count breaths, like from one to 10. And um, because, you know, it's easier to think of, okay, I can be present for 10 breaths than to say I can be present for 45 minutes, right? And so you count the breaths, but if you get distracted, you start over. So very often when you count breaths, you never get past one or two. That's okay. But you start over, and it actually is very useful for narrowing the focus of your attention, if you're having uh, a lot of trouble being mindful of breathing. And for some people, it's a great technique. I know, um, you know, my teacher used it for two years of practice. That was the only method he used. Um, you know, and I've used it, you know, many times. Sometimes at the beginning of the sitting, and then I just open it up. Uh, but it, you know, if uh, so, so the reason I mention is that this is a really useful method for um, uh, for s- some of the hindrances if you can't be with them and and experiencing fully. You need a remedy. That's a great remedy. Um, uh, The other remedy for, um, you know, when you're feeling very contracted, like that, is to listen to sounds. You know, some of you have done sound meditation, but right now, kind of open to the sounds outside. You know, the sounds in the room. My voice—it kind of gives you a little more room, you know. So when you're feeling really contracted and in, in a hindrance, it just gives you a lot more space, and it can, you know lets you continue and bring mindfulness back. Um, with pain, one of the things that um, if pain's really um, especially if it's chronic and going on and on and on, sometimes it makes the mind too grim to pay attention to it. And it's not all that useful. You know, if you've been, uh, if your mind gets so grim and tight and unhappy, you're not really particularly doing anything useful for yourself. So working with pain is, is a real, requires a little more skill. And one of the things you can do is focus on something that doesn't hurt. So with physical pain, uh, for instance, no matter where you're hurting, you can probably find one spot in your body that doesn't hurt. might be your little toe, you know. Uh, but you can find somewhere it doesn't hurt, or, or ideally something that's pleasant. Um, you know, I've uh, uh, sometimes focused on um, like a slight smile on my face, um, and that kind of has a nice little sweet little feeling, you know, and, that, and that's helpful. Um, or sometimes people focus on loving-kindness and feelings of loving-kindness. Uh, so um, again, it's an art working with pain. And I don't mean the pain that you, you know, that's like kind of, oh, I've been sitting too long and I feel a little bit of pain. I'm talking about, you know, this, uh, you know pain that uh, really becomes, uh, unma- feels unmanageable to us. Um, if we have a strong dislike for someone, we can focus on something we like about them. Um, I did an exercise at an airport once, and, um, and th- the exercise was to look at everybody I saw and, um, s- you know, and see something positive about them, something I liked about them. Uh, I was working with my tendency to be very judgmental, very negative. And as um, so I looked around, you know, it, w- it was easy for a lot of people, oh, look, you know, they're, um, they look like they're excited about where they're going and, and you know, and oh, look what a nice hairstyle they have or nice something, you know. Um, and then I saw uh, somebody hit their kid, you know, and it was just like, okay, hatred arose. (laughs) Uh, You know, they were really awful to their kid. And, you know, and in that moment, you know, I tried to, you know, um, you know, it didn't forgive what they did. I mean, it didn't uh, condone what they did. But I tried to see this person as a person, not just the sum of that action and I did find something. I don't remember what it was anymore. It may have been uh, the shoes he was wearing or something. You know, something insignificant, but it was still, um, you know, breaking that habit of taking people and putting them in boxes. That person blew it, they're in the bad person box. You know, um, and and um, and the habit of always, you know, viewing things really, you know, good and bad. Um, uh, you know, of supporting the hatred in me, supporting the anger in me. Um, so it was really helpful to you know start breaking that cycle. Uh, one of the things that happened on retreat um, um, was at this retreat center. Some of you have been to IMS, and um, you know you know how you guys some of people do very slow walking meditation, and. Um, This guy was walking very, very slowly, but everywhere all the time. If he went to the food line, if he went to the... I mean, he was really into his practice. You know, he was so focused. And so we're um, trying to go to lunch, and there's this one very narrow doorway that's uh, that about 100 people need to get past. And people are trying to get to lunch, the cooks are and they rang the bell already and he's oblivious. He's totally oblivious. And, you know, and I'm behind him. You know, I'm getting hungry and, and but I'm also feeling like all these people behind me. And, and how could, you know, I was so, um, so angry. They actually have a term for this, you know, on, on retreat. Um, they call it uh, a vendetta. I, I just like this guy. I just, you know, every time I saw him, I was like, ugh, you know. And, and at one point, I finally, finally woke up to the fact of what I was doing inside my own heart, you know. And I, you know, I finally started looking at him with some compassion, you know. Um, Both, you know, this guy really cares about his practice so much that he's trying so hard, but, uh, but, and also I thought, you know, God, probably someone's is so oblivious, he must have a lot of suffering in his life from not connecting with people, you know. So a lot of compassion arose towards him, but boy, it sure took a while for that to dissipate, you know. Um, so, um, yeah, so that's a, that's a remedy. <laughs> look, for, look for something, look for something we like. Um, so the next pair is sloth and torpor and uh, restlessness, and um, and I think uh, we verified that uh, everyone here has, has had some sloth and torpor at some point, right? And so sloth is like, you know, you guys have seen the animal, sloth the sloth, it's like a slothfulness is like a, a heavy body where you can have trouble holding yourself up, Uh, And just like the sloth, it just hangs there, you know, it doesn't move. Uh, And torpor is is more the mind, a mind that feels like kind of dull. It just doesn't want to do anything. It's just kind of very, very dull. And um, um, sloth and torpor can be both pleasant and unpleasant. I don't know if you've experienced this, like sometimes it's very dreamy and kind of sweet and it's okay if, I don't pay, if I'm not mindful. This feels really good. I mean, I had a hard sitting and this is really nice. And so, you know, that can be part, that can be one aspect. The other aspect uh, is so hard, I'm so sleepy. And, and um, you know, so, so it's, a, it's an art to work with this state. Um, also to recognize whether you actually need sleep. You know, in this culture, we so many of us are sleep deprived. You know, so we sometimes have to go take a nap if you need to. Um, but sometimes we we get sleepy because something's difficult. A lot of people get sleepy when it's difficult. Some people get sleepy when they relax. They're not used to relaxing, so they get sleepy. So um, you know, bringing mindfulness to it, we begin to understand what, what uh, you know what are the factors involved. Um, you know, you take a child, if if you've had a child, have you, you know, or been with a child or been a child, you know, I think you might recognize, um, you know, a child that says, oh, I'm so tired, I just don't want to do anything, you know. And you say, do you want to go for ice cream? You know, and, and suddenly they've got all this energy, right? You know, they they were not sleepy. <laughs> uh, that, that was more of a sloth and torpor type, uh, type stage. They didn't want to do what they were doing. Um, So remedies, remedies for for sloth and torpor, you know. Uh, Of course, the first thing is to know it's there, to recognize it. Uh, Breathing more deeply, sitting up a little straighter. Um, Opening your eyes. Doing meditation with your eyes open is totally acceptable. If, If you do, you know, just let the eyes not focus on anything in particular just a few feet in front of you. Getting light in your eyes, um, you know, uh, affects your nervous system. Uh, one of the methods I've used is pulling the ears. Um, you know, it just cause just a tiny little bit of pain. Uh, you know, not really pain, just right on the edge of pain and will often stimulate you. Pain tends to stimulate you, wake you up a little bit. Um I used to think that the Buddha had really long ears. he must have had a lot of sloth and torpor yeah <laughs> <laughs> i mean i don 't know if he really had really long ears, but all the pictures show these really elongated in um, um, another m- uh, remedy is to just stand up you know um, when we did the posture earlier uh you know i didn 't really. Talk about standing meditation, but it's a very legitimate way to meditate. And one of the um, things that's easy to do is to stand up right where you are, or ideally, is you stand up but you put your hands on a chair in front of you. You know that makes it a little bit easier. Uh, but it's a you know if you're really having a hard time, that's a you know feel free to do that in the hall if you need to. Um, And so to touch briefly on, on uh, restlessness, um, you know, restlessness is a feeling of agitation, um, and uh, you know, if you think about it, it just makes the mind busy. It's hard to see clearly because there's a lot going on, and. Um, <coughs> You know, it can be unpleasant, or sometimes it can be pleasant, you know, because you've just got all these creative ideas, and, and you know, you're just you're enjoying what you're thinking about. And, oh, and I can do this, and I can do that, and I can— you know, you can get into all this stuff, you know, but, but it can arise all out of restlessness. Um, restlessness gets worse when you struggle against it. Uh, so if you're really restless um, and y- in meditation, and, and you're going, I want to be calm, you know, and and so you're like struggling against your restlessness because you don't think it should be there. The more you push against your restlessness that way, you know, it gets even more agitated. You know, so so with restlessness, you know, being mindful of it, uh, it doesn't like like we said doesn't have to be a problem. And one of the my favorite remedies for it is to open up the field of attention. Like if you f- if you have um, If you think of wild horses in in a corral, you know you put a bunch of wild horses in a corral and they're really agitated, they're really unhappy. But you give them a large pasture, and they're they're thrilled, you know, they're joyous. And we can do that with the restless mind. Just open up instead of trying to force ourselves. Okay, let's watch every breath. Just open up, feel the whole body, feel the room, feel you know, uh, uh, listen to sounds. Uh, Just open it up and allow that restlessness to be there. Just allow it and allow it. Um. There's a lot of things underneath restlessness. So by being present with it, you can begin to see what's what's really going on. Uh, Sometimes a lot of suppressed emotions create restlessness. Uh, things arise and, uh, you know, they're like underneath the surface. And as you allow yourself to pay attention to the restlessness, those things might show up. (coughs) You know, that's a lot of the, you know, you've heard the term monkey mind, most of you. You know that's what a restless mind does. It's like it grabs from one thing to another. Even if it's worrying, like um, uh, some people tend to worry about the same thing over and over again, like plan the same thing. Uh, You know, uh, I've I've planned the same thing like five or six times um, during a sitting. Uh, It's had this compulsive worrying and planning. Um, But actually, what it does is it reaches out from this part of the worry. Uh, the mind goes to this part, to this part, to this part. It might come back to the same place, but it's like still grabbing and grabbing and grabbing, you know, uh, to the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. Um, and one, one other thing that's really important I want to say about restlessness is that the mind likes stimulation. It's used to stimulation. When we quiet the mind, uh, we can you know we sometimes, if we're not used to it, we might experience it as boredom. And what it is, what boredom is, it's like it's a it's a low stimulation state that might be slightly unpleasant to you. And so we go, that's boredom instead of, oh, I don't like how, I don't like this feeling that I'm feeling. and And so we make the mind busy so we don't have to feel that feeling. And, um, you know, I've had that happen so many times in retreat i find you know, I finally realized I never get bored because I really if I notice that state of low stimulation, um you know, I can just pay attention to it, I go, "Oh, that doesn't feel good, and it's through paying attention to that that it transforms amazingly uh, uh, because it's just n- uh, becomes interesting i you can get really interesting in bo- in a bored state. it's fascinating, really, when you really watch that, what is it I don't like? you know like when you're bored, feeling bored, you know not much is happening. I'm watching the breath, it's kind of uh you know what what's really going on? What don't I like here? You know there's no pain necessarily, there's no uh what is it you know and and so you can really touch that those that emotional tone that's just slightly unpleasant in low stimulation and you get really interested in it and it becomes very intimate and it no longer is bored boring. So allow yourself to really explore boredom um, instead of uh, just, you know, trying to get rid of it through stimulation, through through restlessness. And just a couple more things on unrest, um, restlessness, is that just by sitting still, not fidgeting, the mind will calm down. You know, it's like you take a glass of water and, and you put a bunch of stuff in and you shake it. If you just leave it alone, everything settles to the bottom. So, just by sitting still, sitting quietly, the mind will settle. And with enough practice, you trust that. It may take a few sittings, but, uh, but it happens. And, um, and lastly, I want to just say a few words about doubt, you know, because um, doubt's kind of the, the trickiest um, hindrance to understand, and to, to notice, to actually notice, not to understand. Um, we can have doubts about the teachings, about the method, uh, about the instructions, and about our own potential of meditating, of of being on the path, of learning how to do this. Um, And questioning those things can be useful. You know, questioning uh, uh, the teachings, I think it's great. I like to question everything, you know. Um, uh, But it's not useful when you're sitting on the cushion. It keeps you from applying yourself. Uh, questioning yourself, God, do I have the ability to do this? I'm a bad meditator. Other people seem to be sitting so still. I'm, you know, I'm I'm all over the place. Uh, I'm no good at this. You know, that's not applying yourself. That's you're caught in doubt. And if you recognize that, oh, that's doubt, and then you apply yourself. Uh, doubt keeps you from being in the present. Um, you know, as a hindrance. Doubt in. Uh, you m- maybe that you need more instruction. Maybe you need clarification. And you can get that outside the meditation. Uh, you can talk to a teacher. You can do what you need, read something. Uh, so it's, you know, but in the meditation itself, uh, you want to really focus on what's in front of us, really applying what's in front of us. Um, it's just not productive. It disconnects us. You know, working with the hindrances is a gradual training. And, you know, at first we're lucky if we even recognize them. So, um, you know, it's good to have patience with them uh, all along, uh, all along. And, um, you know, what's really important, again, is having a friendly relationship with them. So I'd like to end with a Rumi poem that I think, um, you know, he may not have had the language of uh, of this practice, uh, but he definitely had the spirit of it. So, um, you know, many of you have heard this, but listen to it with a new, newly. It's really a a, a very, um, uh, goes very deep, I think, you know. Um, So it's The Guest House by Rumi. This being human is a guest house, every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. So thank you. And just take one minute, we'll sit for one minute before we end.